Okay, I'm ready. All righty. Hope I can do this. Oh, have you like written it all out? No, no. I just want to make sure that I'm covering. I'm covering the. <laughs> I'm really bad at this, man. Yeah. Maybe you'll have to start doing it. Well, you know, actually, all of this, this little banter here, this is all going in. So oh. point. To- <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool, actually. That's going to be great. Anyway, I think I think this is a really good episode, Shadi, that we just recorded right now. Uh, I I think I think you know. I liked it a lot. Yeah. It was, so it was really fun. Yeah, and we have. Very special guest. He's controversial. Indeed. His name is Sorab Amari. So he joined us. And I'd say that he's one of the leading Catholic um, writers and authors who's talking about some big issues now. He is the op-ed editor for the New York Post. His previous book um, was called From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. And his new book, which is... um, the reason that we're talking to him about all these issues is called The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. We went almost an hour and a half talking about all things liberalism, tradition, Catholicism. So because it's a bit of a longer episode, we're dividing it into two parts. Part one is available for everyone, and part two is for subscribers. Part two is quite interesting because we go into some unusual territory, including on how Sohrab has gained more respect for Islam since his conversion to Catholicism. And I hadn't really heard him talk about that before. So I really enjoyed that. If you are interested in subscribing, you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. And we'll also include a link to subscribe in the show notes if you're interested. Not only will you get these bonus episodes um, almost every week, you'll have full access to our Friday essay, the weekly column that Demir and I write uh, every week, as well as other paid content. So I hope, we, we hope you'll consider joining us and becoming a member of Wisdom of Crowds. And with that little intro, uh, now on to the main attraction, our conversation with Sorab Mari. Hope you guys enjoy it. Well, uh, um, well, the natural. So, do you want to do like a natural, like me, me and you, and then I'll, I'll just. Yeah, or... I mean, this is it already. This is the oh, natural, natural. So, yeah, go ahead and start. That's don't already feel... what we're doing. This yeah. meta thing. Don't feel, and, don't feel bashful. And you're probably going to hear a third voice very shortly. We're very excited to have him, Sorab Mari who is the author of a new book. Uh, it's called The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. The book just came out. We'll include a link in the show notes. Highly recommended. And I know that I, by now I've been saying this every time we have someone with a new book where I'm like, you really, really should get this book. I'm going to say it again because this time it also happens to be true, which will make it interesting the first time we have a guest where I'm not as excited and then you guys might be able to notice. But, yes, so uh, we're very happy to have him. And uh, so welcome, so Rob. Thank you, guys. And maybe just to, to get started and frame the book a little bit and what really caught my attention and also surprised me a little bit, which is, you know, so Rob, you're not a stranger to controversy. Even by Twitter standards, I would say you're fairly controversial and sometimes you know, you get in Twitter, Twitter um, debates and, and controversies and crises where people attack you a lot. 
And so sometimes debate debates is a gentle way to put it. <laughs> exactly, gentle. Yeah. So, but what's interesting about this book is that when I was reading it, I was expecting controversy, and it is certainly controversial in certain ways. But it's also a book, and I mentioned this to you in one of our previous conversations. It's also a book that I can imagine well-meaning, reasonable liberals reading in good faith and maybe appreciating certain parts of it. Even someone like, say, Barack Obama, because Barack Obama did include, you know, one of your one of your friends, uh, Patrick Janine, um, his book, uh, Why Liberalism Failed, and Obama liked that. So I can imagine Obama liking this one, or at least parts of it. So it's not necessarily a polemic, but there's just a, there's also a lot of richness um, that I think cuts across partisan and even ideological lines. If anyone has concerns or criticisms about the current liberal order, they'll probably find something appealing in what you have to say. So I'm curious, maybe just uh, tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do with this book and maybe the level of controversy that you were aiming for and what you're really trying to accomplish. What do you want readers to take away? Um, sure. Uh, thank you for all the kind words about the book, uh, Shadi, and also the very kind to the book on Twitter as well. You're absolutely right that um, the book will surprise people who are primarily familiar with me as a polemicist and a disturber of the intellectual peace uh, the reason for that is because this is this book is a, a project of posterity. Um, I began writing it when my son Max was two years old. He's now four. And it's a book I wrote for my son basically out of a sense of anxiety about the kind of person that our civilization will chisel out of him. Um, as I recount in the book's introduction, you know, I spent my teens and 20s is almost sort of the perfect subject of liberal order. Um, I immigrated to the United States from Iran. I happened to end up in in, in a trailer court in, in northern Utah. And then within a decade, uh, I'm catapulted to uh, New York City, where I'm working on the Wall Street Journal opinion pages, later transferred to London. I marry a wife, uh, a woman who's also an immigrant, although she's ch Chinese. And so, you know, I'm a partaker of and beneficiary of the of precisely the sort of centrifugal forces of liberalism, of its, its barrier-dissolving capacities. Um, and yet, when I'm confronted with the fact, as a, as a new father, the fact that I'm about to uh, have a, a child who grow into a, a man, I'm suddenly filled with anxiety and all the gratitude I might have for liberalism's ability to maximize my choices aren't enough to allay my fears about, um, you know, uh, what kind of a uh, man my Max will be. And so um, the framing device in the introduction might be worthwhile to talk about. Uh, I begin with St. Maximilian Kolbe, who is my son's namesake. He was a Franciscan friar who was canonized as a saint because he chose to lay down his life for a stranger at Auschwitz in 1941. And so I begin with, begin with that Max, and then I imagine what kind of a Max my Max will be when he's at the same age as Maximilian Kolbe. And it's not that I'm worried that he'll be like, I don't know, sort of manifestly an economic loser in our zero-sum economic war of citizens against citizen or class against class. Chances are he'll um, inherit his parents' elite status. Rather, what I'm worried about is just he'll just be kind of this TED Talk spewing shallow creature who just seeks after money and has spent his whole, his whole life, quote-unquote, trying to keep his options open. What that means is that he actually hasn't exercised his freedom because if you always keep your options open, you don't actually ever reduce your freedom from potency to act. You don't actually 
do anything. And um, I contrast that with um, the vision of freedom represented by Maximilian Kolbe, which is a vision of um, a profound vision of uh, of freedom as of self sacrifice, of um, self denigration, of of apparent surrender. Of course, that apparent surrender is Maximilian Kolbe's triumph in Auschwitz of all places. And I worry that the account of freedom that my son will inherit, the one that tells him he, you know, that uh, freedom means keeping your options open and having maximal choice from among contraries, is an impoverished one. And so I want to tie my Max to something better than I myself can offer him. And that something is tradition. It is this deeper account of freedom that spans many traditions, in fact, not just his own Catholic one, the one that um, I'm bringing him up in, but others as well. And so the book becomes my effort to try to introduce my Max and hopefully the reader to this other account of freedom. And because I'm not a theologian or a philosopher, I'm just a, a journalist and a storyteller, I structure the book around... 12 unasked questions, each of them poking holes in one aspect of our contemporary ideology, or questions that our civilization thinks have been resolved or are no longer worth asking because of the advances in science and technology, uh, whereas I actually think they're still pertinent to, to a good, truly free life. And then I explore each of those through the life of one great thinker. Um, some of them are very kind of predictable, I guess, um, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Henry Newman, the, the great English convert in the 19th century. But there are others that someone who knows me as a public Catholic will be surprised. You know, Confucius is there. Uh, a pair of British anthropologists, Victor and Edith Turner, who spent their whole life thinking and writing about African religious rituals. And Andrea Dorkin, of all people, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And so the book, each chapter of the book is is explores the question at hand through the life of this person, through the drama of uh, of of a beginning, middle, and end, which is a genre that I kind of created and I find very attractive, and hopefully the reader will as well. But that that there is, you're absolutely right that there is this kind of ecumenical spirit to it. It's it's um, if you look there, you will definitely see the kind of sorrow of the controversialist. But it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't. I don't hammer the reader in the way that I might a polemical target in one of my famous or infamous. Essays, <laughs> and and you're not worried that people might now get the wrong idea about you. They might see this new Sorab as gentle, and uh... <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I, look, a polemic is always a, a a thing of the moment. Whereas here, I'm trying to transmit something long term, and so it just calls for a. a dip. It's not like I'm never going to write a polemical piece again or yeah, get into arguments on Twitter or whatever. But you know, um, and I would argue that there's the, the same. You know, frankly, anti-liberal subversiveness is present here, too. It's just posed in a way where I, I hope a liberal can read it and say, oh, yeah, there is this shortcoming in, in you know, they're, at the very least, if I not, they're not a convinced post-liberal or what you may call it. It at least makes them aware that there is some shortcomings in liberal ideology and that, that they're worth thinking about even from within the liberal frame, if need be. But um, so it's worth my being gentle in that sense. Sorry, yeah. you know, you know, it's really... What's really striking to me about the book, uh, and I think, you know, even your your opening remarks here, outlining it, it gets at, well, a kind of paradox. You even alluded to it uh, just when you were you were talking about it. It's it's the paradox is, on the one hand, it's, I think, a very familiar worry about, you know, the future, and especially when one has kids about the, the world that, that one is bequeathing to uh, one's, one's child and the, you know, setting the child free into this world. 
But what's also striking to me, and, and is just that you said, is you know, you in the, at the beginning of the book, you outline your own path to becoming the Sorab that that we all know, um, and you know the positions that you take, but also your personal journey, you know, coming to America, and then your your sense of rediscovering yourself. And you said, you know, just now how there's an element that that you owe something to this kind of uh, the ability that that you know that has well the, the kind of society that has allowed you yourself to to sort of. Uh, become who you are. Mm -hmm. So can I can I push you on that a little bit? I mean, yeah, you know, uh, like was it there looks any... like a, it looks like a paradox or a contradiction. Well, a little bit. Is was, was there any value for you? I mean, here's a, a narrower question: Is there is there value? Do you think there was any value to your journey of getting where you are today? Is there any intrinsic value in the path? Oh, oh sure, sure. I mean, let me um, uh, answer that in in from a kind of um, merely uh, personal and spiritual point of view. I'd say absolutely yes. Um, there's a um, you know, famous Latin phrase, um, Felix culpa, oh, happy fault, that is. Oh, my fault, oh, oh the fault of Adam, if you will, that made possible the, the, the redemption of, of, of mankind um, by Christ, which is all the more luminous, all the more glorious for the fact that it arises out of the fault of Adam and that, that there's a higher kind of perfection achieved than would have been possible had there not been a fall in, in a first transgression in the garden. So Felix Culpa, and so to apply that to my own life, yes, I mean, if I look at you know my my personal journey from this kind of confused, fresh off the boat, uh, precocious teenager to where I am now, there's this um, beauty that's revealed, and I've written a spiritual memoir um, kind of describing uh, or accounting for myself why I believe what I believe and why, you know, in 2016 I was received into the Roman Catholic Church. That said, from a point of view of a father and therefore a necessarily a someone who is in a political community, first a family and then a larger political community extending to a nation and beyond, my concerns are different in the sense that it's, first of all, it's not as if uh, conversion journeys were unheard of in kind of pre-modern times. So I, I wouldn't rule out the fact that I may have taken a similar journey had, had we not, you know, it, had we not made... As a, as a civilization, have we not certain, taken certain steps that I could view as mistakes? I may still have, have, have uh, changed my mind and I would have been allowed to change my mind uh, uh, otherwise. This, the other thing is, just because I, I sort of took this, uh, what I view as a circuitous path to the wisdom of tradition, and specifically one tradition in particular, which happens to be sort of very universal tradition, just because I took a circuitous path doesn't mean that I would want a society that is a gauntlet of error that everyone has to go through and that many people never quite make their way through. They're just, their lives are plunged in material misery, which I think we should address, or you know, sort of uh, moral degradations that are um, intrinsic to liberalism. And they in many, many, as I said, many never quite take the circuitous path at all. Um, so it's worthwhile then to return to this older tradition of what it means to be free, which always has always insisted not just the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, but also the, the Greco-Roman, the classical tradition, that have always said freedom is not having maximal individual choice, but rather to be sufficiently master over yourself that you can literally govern yourself. So not only are you able to resist a tyrant, an external tyrant, but you master the interior tyrant and you grow in virtue and become more detached from your baser appetites. And that's what it means to be really free. And this account of freedom is very comfortable with and accepts limits. 
And if you read the book, um, you'll see that although there are all these different questions and each one is explored through the life of this kind of disparate cast of characters from from uh, Aquinas to Andrea Dworkin, you notice that um, in each case, you see the working out of the same paradox where something that was uh, imposed, if you will, by traditional societies and that looked like a limitation on choice and limitation on freedom, as it uh, as it disappeared, as that limit was abolished, as that barrier was demolished, we find that we're not actually free, that it, that it makes us um, less free. So in this sense, the book is very subversive because what I'm proposing is that an entire account of freedom might be wrong and that um, we may want to reconsider some real sort of epical choices that, that, that have brought us to the point we are. I sort of digressed from your original question, but I, I think I addressed it. No, just no, no, you I, did. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, I, it's, it's, uh, I, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. That's why, I mean, I also, you know, I, I, I echo Shadi uh, that I think this is a, a, a book definitely worth reading and, and worth grappling on this because, you know, I mean, I think, I think both Shadi and I would to a certain extent, uh, I won't speak for Shadi, but I mean, you know, the, the, the critique is, is I think, um, is powerful and resonant. And I mean, in, in many ways, I, I think in different ways, we are skeptical of, of, of many of the same sort of facets of sort of modern society. I guess the part that, that for me is interesting, and I'd like to maybe even tease out some more, is, is the difference. Well, it's, it's, it's partly the practicalities of it, because while, you know, I mean, it's not just a, it's, it's not just a religious uh, tradition. It's a, it's a secular philosophic tradition that's about self-mastery and, 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 and uh, you know, placing limits upon oneself to truly appreciate freedom and it's 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 uh, it's the uh, practical application of that in society ultimately, mm -hmm. right? And it's it's um, you know you you have a chapter, for example, uh, in there uh, about uh, about the Sabbath mm -hmm. uh, and the importance of that. I mean, uh, what do you what do you think the actual um, implications of something like that, of a policy choice like that, uh, are for? For a society as it is, I mean, I you know, I'm originally Croatian. I go back all the time. Uh, you know, uh, super Catholic society. Super Catholic society, though. Again, you know, super Catholic society emerging from uh, you know decades of, of of socialism, Yugoslav identity, all the rest of that. So also also a kind of society that that the identity becomes Catholic, but the practice and the 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 day to day. Um, I mean, Mar maybe it's because my family is not particularly religious, but so I mean, I, I can't speak for all of Croatian society. But, uh, you know, more broadly, also in a lot of ways, even though uh, church is attended, um, it's it's it is also a little bit of going through the motions. I wonder, I mean, can you can you talk about that at least? And never mind Croatia, which maybe is a little exceptional in the European context, but say Italy, for example, a Catholic society, Austria, a Catholic society where they have closed shops on Sunday. Yet they're still suffering, I think, from a certain kind of uh, spiritual malaise. Just a point to pick out one one of the points that you're making on this, but maybe to stand in for a larger question of, you know, societies, modern societies and the problems inherent in modernity more broadly than than just liberalism in, in sort of Western and then the what, what we're able to do about it. So um, let me steer clear of, of, of Croatian history, but address <laughs> your point more generally, which is well taken. Let me just begin on the, on the Sabbath and my argument in the Sabbath, if I can restage it or recapitulate it briefly here. Um, uh, uh, so it basically, um, I argue that the Sabbath is not only obviously, a, a, a religious obligation, but that it's good for human beings, particularly working class people today, as a source of rest 
frankly. And the practicality of it is not so strange or, or alien or shouldn't be to Americans because America has had a Sabbatarian tradition going back before there was an American Republic in the colonies. So um, Sabbatarianism is the idea that the law should uphold one day uh, as a day of rest, and a day of worship. And not only in Puritan New England, which was obviously uh, kind of a hyper-religious society, but also in supposedly more secular Virginia and in New Amsterdam, which becomes New York, in all of these places, the colonial authorities imposed um, a Sabbatarian requirements of uh, one day, Sunday was set off for rest. And so we've had that tradition and it's, disappearance was really is relatively recent the last statewide um, blue law actually was repealed only in 2019 and that was in north dakota but across the 20th century well into the 20th century there are people who within living memory remember that you know malls used to be shuttered once a once a week and um various activities were set aside so what's what's good about that and why did particularly the the labor movement the, the nascent the nascent labor movement in the late 19th century begin allying with you know the Protestant um, core of this country at the beginning of the late 19th century over the question of the Sabbath is because it's not only okay, it's good for people to leave one day for the things of God and for scripture, but also because as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's the subject of that chapter says, you, you win interior liberty thanks to the Sabbath. That is, though you might spend six days a week in kind of acquisitiveness, in competition, in hard work, and those are good things and those are those secure goods that are worthwhile. If you devote all your life to it, then you, you don't have a minute for setting aside this realm of space, as Rabbi Heschel says, the realm of economic and geopolitical conquest, the realm of, of competing with your neighbor, the realm of comparing yourself to the Joneses. In the realm of time, the realm of the Sabbath, for one day you sort of take a, a breath in the image of God's own taking a breath. And so you, you, you rest, you set those things aside, and you're reminded that, this is not, that those aren't the only goods, that there are other goods. Um, and that's, it's especially good for working class people, but it's also, I mean, even for people in our uh, laptop class or whatever you want to call it, um, because we see that it's loss, the loss of the Sabbath has left us harried and miserable. Um, I mean, I see that myself where there's, there's not a, that not having that Sabbath spirit leaves me so restless where if I'm having dinner with my family and my phone buzzes in my pocket, I can't help but kind of twitch with, with anxiety and, and it, uh, the desire to look at what's in there on the phone. So that that's all to say that there's a kind of setting aside its religious dimension. There's a temporal, a secular case for having a, a Sabbath. Now, so, uh, let me just finish the thought because I didn't fully answer his question. I know I, I, I give long, digressive answers. Luckily, this is one of those podcasts, but just very quickly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, Demir says, so, you know, having, for example, a Sabbath doesn't necessarily mean that you end up with a more deeply religious society. The answer I would give to that is that I... As a political Catholic, some people use the term integralism, but I use the term political Catholic. I'm okay with people going through the motions. In other words, I don't seek this idea that um, the ordinary person has to be like a, a, a monastic, uh, you know, a nun or a, or, a, or a Dominican friar, like deeply engaged in prayer in the way that those uh, those figures might be. Um, the whole idea of of kind of Constantinian Christianity and what Constantine, the Constantinian conversion enabled was that, you know, before that Christianity, religion was really for a kind of spiritual elite, people who could just 
it withstand any persecution. The society was utterly opposed to them, but they sort of held on. Those people have a place in the life of the church and of, of Christian civilization. But there's also a place for the guy who, you know, didn't know what all this stuff was about. But then the Constantinian conversion happens and it becomes ordinary and for him to become a Christian. And now he may not deeply believe every element of the creed. He may not even understand it. He may have been offering sacrifices to the pagan deities a, a week earlier. Nevertheless, he's benefiting from the sacraments. He lives in an order now where, you know, uh, you don't expose unwanted babies outside the city walls and leave them to die. And, you know, his, 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 his faith may not be more than just going through the motions. And nevertheless, it's worthwhile. It, that is Christian civilization. That is Christian peoplehood. And so I, I think it's actually kind of, it is, again, a very kind of relatively modern understanding of the relationship between faith and civilization, where you say, like, every, you know, I shouldn't need any social structural supports. I, I alone can just, through my own perfection, can just pursue God. And therefore, I don't need the laws to be supportive of, of a relatively kind of virtuous religious life. Mm. Well, so, Rob, I'm glad you you mentioned that this idea of going through the motions can actually be a good thing. And I think that in our modern rationalist society, we sort of dismiss it when people do things if if they don't feel it. We want people to feel things and to get like emotional. And if they're not feeling it, then somehow it becomes a less valuable activity. And I think that even in, in, in an Islamic context, I've had conversations with, um, let's say, more progressive types who, you know, in even just more broadly, that questioning the questioning the um, the point of prayer, if you're not actually bend, if you don't, if you're not kind of immediately feeling something, or if it's not giving you a boost, then what is actually the point of it? Is it is it a means or an end unto itself? And um, which gets, I think, to a, a really fundamental question about what the role of ritual in religion actually is. And I think from an Orthodox perspective, there's no doubt about it. If you're Muslim, you should be praying five times a day, regardless of how empty you feel or how pointless it seems to you that you're just supposed to do it. And we did talk about some of that with Mustafa Akyal in a pre in a previous episode, this question of is, is there, is there a rationale for religious acts that are secular, basically, or do you do things because you're supposed to obey God, so on and so forth. But the, the bigger question to kind of um, to maybe take it one step further um, from Demir's question about the role of the Sabbath is when I was when I was reading your book, I, I, I found myself a little bit torn in the sense that, as, as you know, so Rob, I sort of self-define as a liberal who is critical of liberalism. And I think that I, I share a lot of your diagnosis, a lot of your criticism, and I think Demir does, as he mentioned as well. But where I struggle, again, is, is not just on the Sabbath laws, but on the bigger question of what to actually do about this. Because if we take your critique on, it basically means that there's something fundamentally corrupt and rotten, even, about modern American liberalism. And here I'm not necessarily talking about left liberalism, although that, that's one strand, but the liberal idea more broadly. And if it has failed to this extent, if it is lacking to this degree, where a lot of us know that there's something wrong, we feel it. And I think this is where your critique has a kind of cross-partisan appeal. I think most, most sentient beings know that something is wrong, something doesn't feel right. They might come to different conclusions about what that looks like, but I think that 
there aren't a lot of people who are incredibly optimistic about what American society currently is, um, or, or the majority majority of Americans, I think, would would um, sympathize with the critique. But if the scale of the problem is so large and is and and is so and is so foundational, it would be great if we can talk a little bit about what can actually be done. So yes, the Sabbath has its place even if it doesn't change society or even if it's a relatively minor thing in the broader sweep of our current situation, it's good, yes. But it still leaves us with a kind of vacuum that isn't going to be addressed. So um, so let's say that we start implementing blue laws in this country, i.e. Sabbath or Sunday laws, you're still going to have the majority of Americans who have drifted away from Christianity, drifted away from religion. They won't go to the mall. They won't. Um, they won't go out. But they'll still. They'll just go on Netflix, or um, they won't even be going through the motions in terms of um, recapturing something more important to them. They're just going to be doing whatever they would have done otherwise in a lot of these circumstances. Can you take us maybe a couple steps further? So let's say let's say Sunday laws. What step two? Step three? where you actually find ways to reduce or or constrain freedom in a more serious systematic way because you you're not you're not willing you don't actually shy away from the idea that you are a political catholic you use the term po- political catholicism others sometimes talk about catholic integralism can you lay out for us what what that looks like as a political program if we're, if there are enough people who want to push it a step or two further Sure. I mean, I don't want to go down a kind of policy list. I guess we could without laying out a comprehensive framework first. That is a, a, an account that would give coherence to any particular policy item that might that I might bring up. So one of them might be the restoration of the Sabbath. And again, I very quickly say for me, if, if, if restoring blue laws means that, you know, a working class family can just spend time together, even if they spend that time not doing like what I would want them to do, you know, I'd be fine with that. Like, I just think, you know, Americans need rest, especially lower down the economic ladder. Here's what I understand by political Catholicism. And I have a chapter on this. Um, chapter six in the book is, you know, does God need politics? And it's explored through the life of perhaps the supreme political Catholic, uh, St. Augustine. The idea for me is that society one way or another will enshrine some account of the highest good of human life and one way or another some orthodoxy will be enforced we see that undeniably over the past uh, few years uh, whenever whenever that you would say the point at which the replacement ideology what my uh, what wesley yang calls the, the replacement ideology took over um, whether you think it's a, it's a distortion of liberalism or whether it's liberalism on hyperdrive, something happened over the past two years where it became clear that the promise of substantive neutrality as between comprehensive accounts of, of the good life was withdrawn. And it is, to me, as a, as, a, as a political Catholic, it was always clear that that promise was uh, really an attempt to undermine the church in the public square, beginning with the kind of powdered wig liberals of the late 18th and uh, throughout the 19th century, promising, you know, just give us private space to believe what we believe, therefore sort of to diminish the church's mm, claims on public on the public square. Now, having done that, liberalism in its more recent iterations has been very clear about imposing a definitively kind of orthodox account of what the good life is. And when if, you're, if you fall outside of it, you're banished from the public square, you're subject to all sorts of coercive measures. 
what that just shows us is that one way or another, some account of the highest good will be imposed. And the, the liberal idea of neutrality as, been, as between worldviews is just very hard to sustain in the face of the evidence of 2021. Now, I happen to believe the one that the account of the highest good that our society enshrines is actually very destructive for individuals and communities. It, um, um, it, it, it leaves us less free in all sorts of ways, even though it, it happens to be an account that um, attaches itself to the, to the honorable word uh, liberty. Uh, you know, modern accounts of, of, of gender, right, is a sort of clear indication of this, where w what, what could be more liberating than to be able to um, override what your, uh, the, the sex body that you receive from nature and in, impose through sort of technological, medical, technological will, a, a different account of, of gender on the body that you receive from nature. What could be more liberating than that? Except in practice, it means that the politics of recognition demands that everyone else <laughs> speak of you over against what reality tells them about what, you know, what man and woman are and to use like new pronouns that don't make sort of grammatical or logical sense. Or again, on, a, on the economic plane, the idea that liberating the individual actor would, uh, you know, allow us all to just sort of compete freely in the market and so forth. Well, in practice, it's turned out to be that, you know, it favors very large corporations, it, it favors giganticism, and uh, your free speech rights are now subject to the whims of these Silicon Valley impresarios. So... So I reject the the account of the highest uh, good uh, that's enshrined by liberalism, even though it denies that it, it does any such thing. And I see that it's distracted. And so therefore, I propose that yeah, society should enshrine the kind of foundational operating system of, of, the, of the West, which is which is Christianity, including in its natural law dimensions, which the church inherits from Greco-Roman civilization and incorporates into its moral teaching. Um, it's a lot less crazy when you, a proposition, once you realize that one way or another society will enshrine some orthodoxy or other. And this would be, a, it's a much more humane one. It's one to which we owe a lot of the institutions that liberalism claims credit for, like the dignity of the individual, the importance of, of, of natural reason, the the honor that we sort of give to natural reason, so on and so forth, and the sort of fundamental humaneness of it. So if that's the case, then, I mean, we're not talking openly about what, and I'm very happy about this. We've gone through a stage where it's very obvious that, you know, we don't, we don't fall back to any of the old illusions about neutrality. It's very clear that someone, some orthodoxy or other wants to lord over us. And the question is, which one? And if you recognize that, then you, then you, you know, po political ecastic actors are happy to propose theirs in the public square. But the orthodoxies aren't necessarily equal. So, I mean, I certainly agree with you that the liberal orthodoxy that's now in cultural and political power is not neutral. And liberalism is only neutral to those who are already liberal. But at the same time, it's I, I wonder about the word coercion and and the idea that this is a very coercive order, because there are certainly incentive structures to be more liberal or progressive on a number of these issues, um, including on gender, sexual freedom, so on and so forth. But ultimately, for the most part, the state isn't forcing me, certainly not me as an individual to be more liberal than I want to, or to believe things that I don't believe, I still have a wide berth to do the things that I want to do. And there are certain, you can still be 
an ultra conservative Muslim. There are Salafis, uh, you know, to, to, to use the Muslim example, there are Salafis in different parts of the U.S. There are ultra orthodox Jews. It's hard to be that because you have a lot of choice and freedom. But ultimately, the freedom is still there to be orthodox, to criticize the current liberal order. So I wonder, is it correct to draw an equivalency and say that liberals are coercive? So um, is it that different for Catholics to suggest their own potentially coercive ideas about the common good and to use the state to promote that? It, that might be more coercive. Here's let me just even just uh, piggyback on Shadi there. It's how do, how do I put this? I, I, th I found it really interesting what you're saying about, you know, uh, natural law components and how that plays into liberalism. And again, I think Shadi and I both agree with you that something's gone wrong with this liberalism. But it seems to me that that, that you're making a move at some point here uh, that's saying, well, we're facing what I think we agree is a, 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 a grotesque perversion facing us now and that we're faced between two orthodoxies rather than trying to. I don't know, roll back to a kind of more humane pluralism, not to use the L word liberalism, but a kind of pluralism, uh, as opposed to coercion that Chadi's talking about. So I don't know if that also gives some more language that you might want to explore this stuff with. Sure, those are, those are both uh, good points and they, they blend well together. Um, as far as whether or not uh, non-liberal actors are in fact coerced in liberal societies, I, I feel like that's sort of an empirical judgment that you have to make. And, it, and I, the judgment that I make, and I think a lot of religious um, intellectuals make nowadays, is that we are very much coerced. So you, um, you mentioned um, uh, uh, Salafis. I mean, obviously, insofar as they, they, Salafism is bound up with violent uh, jihadism, it's coerced. But, um, you know, in, in Britain... Um, and increasingly, I think in the United States, you'll find that um, what um, religious people get to teach their children is very much subject to regulation. Just um, a couple of weeks ago in Britain, an Orthodox, um, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish day school was sort of written up, was, was, was reprimanded by the state for refusing to teach, you know, uh, the latest woke orthodoxies on, on gender and sexuality to children as young as basically uh, grade school kids, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds. As you know, I mean, obviously the, the President Biden has vowed to renew his effort to force uh, the little sisters of the poor to pay for abortifacients. And, and a lot of the coercion under liberalism, besides those ones which are state directed, you also are getting increasing coercion from private actors. And this is something that um, part of my whole critique of, of liberalism is that we are absolutely coerced, but the coercion is diffuse and is done by you know large corp corporations to which you don't have any kind of appeal. And yet, in order to be able to use, in order to be able to function as a public person, you have to rely on their services. So, we, as at the New York Post, we just went through kind of one of the most blatant cases of of censorship for reporting something um, that you know we all know is true. Um, uh, that uh, Hunter Biden tried to trade on his, um, his, his dad's cachet to arrange meetings between executives from the company that was paying him $50,000 a month and his father, who was then vice president of the United States and Obama administration's point man on Ukraine issues. Um, and so we were, not only was the story uh, banned uh, and reduced in circulation by Twitter and Facebook, but our account was suspended. And so you have a case where for exercising a kind of a, a, a right that 
uh, is a sacred right of, of, of journalism. You know, the New York Post got barreled out of the public square and lots of lots and lots and lots of journalists actually cheered the censorship. And it was all done by private actors. Um, of course, I could go out into the middle of Fifth Avenue and say, you know, Hunter Biden is corrupt. But if 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 these liberal rights live or die, they love, live or die on these platforms. And, and you see a sort of a shocking case in which the, the degree to which private actors can can actually uh, retract the fundamental promise of the of a free press. I could go on and on. I mean, I, I guess uh, it, it, it's my mantra to a lot of people is when they say, is it really that coercive? And I just say, look around you. I mean, I, could, I can't tell you the number of parents in New York City who come up to me and say that they're absolutely terrified of sort of woke indoctrination in their children's schools. And um, the fact that they can't, they can't say anything about it because at the end of the day, they want their kids to graduate from school and go on to college. Anyway, I just think it becomes kind of pointless to, 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 to say, no, it is very coercive. And, and Shadi's like, well, is it that coercive? That's a good point. And you, I'm glad you brought up a number of examples just so listeners can get a sense of what's actually at stake here. Although I, I do, I, I suppose it does vary by locality and state. I mean, there are states that um, perhaps they don't go far enough in combating um, wokeness and the successor ideology and all that. But, you know, in red states, um, there probably is less of that sense of being terrified. So I, I feel like this is in some sense more of a problem for people who decide to be in major urban centers and to live among other liberals. And, you know, in New York City, let's say, or where I live in Washington, D.C., the vast majority of people are Democrats, are liberals, which gets to, I think, a different question of if the vast majority of people in major cities or in particular states want this and they are liberals and they are sort of pushing their own, let's say, liberal or secular orthodoxy onto the state, onto the public educational curriculum, isn't isn't that in some sense what we deserve as a demo- in, in democratic context? What majorities want on a local level tends to get reflected in various institutions, including in schools. And it's very hard to see how that would be undone as as long as the vast majority of New Yorkers or Washingtonians are, in fact, wanting this and they're reflecting their preferences um, in the state. So some of this is also a question of how government institutions are responsive to their constituents. And if constituents become more Catholic or constituents find themselves in some sort of religious awakening, presumably then we would see a change and state institutions would reflect the more the more religious sensitivities of the people that they're serving, right? I think a lot of the changes that you're describing are not um, a ground sort of changes that happened um, organically from, from below, but rather as a result of, of uh, at, at the local level, but rather as a result of large-scale changes so handed down by national and, and international elites i mean the obvious example is, is is our abortion and gay marriage neither of which was achieved by at the ballot box but rather was imposed sort of by judicial fiat but i don't want to get into kind of the typical conservative argument about, about you know judges imposing this my point is that the the process of secularization that you describe if we take a longer longer view i think is 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 largely a, a result of of legal and political developments. So in other words, it's not just that the culture organically changed in this way, but the law taught people to be a certain way. This is an insight, sort of axiomatic insight that where I just sort of refer to Cicero or to, or to Aristotle, where 
you know, again, again, we encounter the idea that of, of the law as teacher. Therefore, what that means for me is that I don't, I don't put too much stock by what the shape of the culture is or what people think they've chosen, because I think a lot of these things that were unthinkable even 15 years ago then became legally thinkable. And then suddenly people found themselves in response to the power of law being like, oh yeah, I've always been here. I mean, in the case of in case of Obama with gay marriage, you saw it almost instantaneously um, where he said, I, I've, I've not instantaneously, but over a relatively short period of time, his views, quote unquote, evolved. And that's very typical of how people respond to sort of legal and political developments so that um, they don't even remember that two weeks ago they held the contrary position. And if that's the case, then I don't, I, I wouldn't worry about then, is the culture with us on, natu- in, on imposing natural law? It may not be, because I know that you know, you can change the law and often people will then find as, as elites change and as, as, as the law changes, the masses will follow along. That concludes part one of our interview with Sora Bamari. I hope you guys will join us uh, for part two, which is for paying members only. Uh, if you're not a paying member, please go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe, um, and you will get access to not just all of our bonus episodes, but also special written content, uh, part of which uh, every Friday, uh, Shadi and I alternate to write uh, an essay. If you'd like access to all of that, please subscribe. Thanks a lot.